0: So First Thessalonians chapter two. If you've got a Bible with you, or if you're at home, we're glad you're here. Let me just say, as you're turning, uh, just kind of to allude to what Nate was talking about, marriage ministry, there's something there for so many of you. We pray you'll take advantage of it. I just wanna say to you all that as a church, we wanna strive to be a place where authenticity uh, is paramount. And I hope you know that you can't just sort of step into being authentic and vulnerable one time and sort of go, okay, well then now it's established and that's all you need to do and now we'll be that way forever. There's this gravitational pull towards hiding in all of our lives. Uh, you may have walked with the Lord for 40, 50 years and you'll find yourself hiding sin that you, you, know, you would have never thought you would have hidden. And so I just want you to recognize that engaging in this marriage pathway, if you're thinking, man, I've been walking with the Lord so long, I can't admit that my marriage is struggling. You can this is a safe place to do that. We want you to come and engage with us. And you help us become the church we need to be. The kind of place where people don't have to say, well, I've walked with Jesus for this long, so I can't admit that I'm still struggling with that or that I started struggling with this or that my marriage is struggling. Or just that we need a tune-up, you know? I mean, we're 25 years in and, and we just kind of lost some of our good habits. Or we need some new, in this next season, we need some new things that we didn't even know we were gonna need 10 years ago. Some of our old stuff isn't working anymore. We need to kind of step into some new things. So I pray you'll take advantage, as, as Nate was saying and inviting you. Um, I'm so excited, not just for what God will do in your marriages, but also for how he's gonna shape our, our life together as a church through that. We can't just step into vulnerability and authenticity one time and then go, good, it's established. You have to keep doing it day by day by day by day in order to truly be the church God wants us to be. Does that make sense? All right. so speaking of marriage I'm guessing that many of you who are married something surprised you about your spouse how many of you say something surprised you about your spouse you're not raising your hands but they did I promise you all right we've all gotten something that surprises about our spouse uh, so Amanda and I got permission to tell this story because it's a good one Amanda when we first got married she told me before we got married she said hey I sleepwalk sometimes Does anybody else sleepwalk Okay, so a few, yeah, some of you sleepwalk. She goes, I sleepwalk sometimes. I do some weird stuff when I sleepwalk. And I was like, okay. But here's how I was introduced to that reality, okay? Because I thought, oh yeah, that, it's cute, right? She sleepwalks a little bit. I'm gonna find her in the kitchen getting a snack. You know, not gonna be, honey, you don't need the snack at 2 a.m. You know, so about a couple months into our marriage, it's about 2 a.m., dead of night, I am deeply asleep and I hear, wake up! I sit bolt upright in bed. She goes, get up, get up, get up. And I'm like, what? What's going on? What's the matter? What's the matter? She's standing at the door, piercing me with her gaze, just looking at me like as serious as serious can be. She goes, the roof is falling. We have to get out. I look up at the roof, and the structural integrity still seems to be there. And she says, We have to get out now. And I'm just, I don't know what to do. I'm like, do I do I go outside with her? Do I splash water? Do I just throw a bucket of water? Like, what do I do? And so I said, honey, are you awake? No response, silence, still staring at me. And so I, you know, 30 seconds. I said, honey, everything's okay, come back to bed. And she goes, okay. <laughs> just comes and gets back in bed. That same strategy has not worked every time. But it worked okay that time. You know, the interesting thing about that is when Amanda's sleepwalking or when any of you are asleep, you don't see things the way they really are, right? I mean, she thought the the roof was coming down. It wasn't coming down. That wasn't reality. But when you're asleep, you just don't see things the way they truly are. And you remember that as we are looking at this book of 1 Thessalonians, we're studying this book, we've seen that what Paul is really saying to the Thessalonians, to the church in Thessalonica, he's saying, keep awake. In other words, see things as they truly are. When you're asleep, you don't see the way things truly are. When you're awake, you see the way things really are. And when Paul says to the Thessalonians, keep awake, what he's saying is, look, there's a way things truly are. And if you want to see it, you need to be awake. And the way to be awake is to live in light of the fact that we know Jesus is coming back. Predominantly, that's what he has in mind. He's saying, when you live your life with this knowledge that Jesus has not just been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, but that he's going to return from that place one day, a day we do not know, but which could happen at any time, when you live in light of that, you're truly awake because you're seeing things as they truly are. He's coming, and we live in light of that. So he's encouraging us to keep away. And Russ did such a wonderful job last week of reminding us as we entered into chapter two. In chapter one, he was just praising the Thessalonians for how they're living, right? And then in chapter two, Russ explained to us that he begins to explain what a minister of the gospel looks like. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been called to be a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador for Christ, every single one of us. And this is what that looks like. And last week he did an excellent job of reminding us that we are to proclaim the gospel boldly. That's part of being a minister of the gospel. Paul's going to continue in this, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, because it's really a description of what it looks like to be a minister of the gospel. What it looks like to make disciples, how you should live if you want to help other people come to know Jesus and what that ministry should look like. So we're gonna look at verses five through 12. I'm gonna read verse four through 12 because we need to connect last week to this week. So Russ covered one to four. I'm gonna cover five to 12 with a little connection in verse four between those two sections where we're talking about what does a minister of the gospel look like? So those of us who are going to keep awake, live in light of the return of Jesus, know that we have been called to be ministers of the gospel. And there's a certain type of character and certain actions that that calls for. And I'm going to give you five today. Let me tell you what they are even before I read them to you. So here are the five things that a minister of the gospel does someone who believes they're entrusted with the gospel. Number one, they don't flatter people. Number two, they don't seek their own glory. Number three, they are gentle. Number four, they share their lives. Not just the the message of the gospel, but their lives. And number five, They care about Christian maturity, not just conversion. In other words, they don't just want people to to be introduced to Jesus. They want them to walk in a deep way with Jesus and to grow to maturity in him. Those five things should mark your ministry. Whatever God has called, whatever ministry he's called you to, those five things should mark that ministry, whatever it may be. Now let me make a connection. Let me, let's go to the text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look with me. Get your eyes in the word. We'll put it up on the screens as well. Let me just read verse 4 and make a comment. And then I'm going to connect it and read the rest. So verse 4 says this. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man. But to please God who tests our hearts. Now. Russ talked about this last week when he talked about bold proclamation of the gospel and that proclamation, meaning we speak to please God, not to please man. But I want to emphasize something that you need to connect to what we're going to hear this week. And it's where he said, you have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. What Paul is saying to you and to me is that you have been given an entrustment. And that entrustment is the great news of the gospel. Let me remind us what that is. It is the news that begins with the bad news that you and I have rebelled against God and raised our fist against him and have not pleased him and have sought to do the opposite of all that we were supposed to do. We have rebelled against him in our emotions, in our minds, with our words, with our actions. We have come up short and we deserve death and hell as a result. That's the bad news. But praise God... For texts like Ephesians 2, which say, we were children of wrath by nature, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us, sent his son into the world. Here's the good news. He didn't leave us in our sin. He sent his son into the world, very God of very God, the only one who could live a perfect life and pay the penalty for our sin. So that we would be justified, legally declared, righteous before God. He came, he lived perfectly. He died on the cross to bear the penalty for the sin that you committed and I committed. None that he committed. Then he didn't stay in the grave, but as evidence that he has power to do what he says he can do, he overcame death and was raised on the third day. And he is alive today. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. He has imparted his spirit to us so that we might grow in his likeness and be empowered to serve him and he will come again. That's the gospel. You have been given an entrustment. If you are the richest person in this room, you have nothing better in your possession than what I just described to you. That is the richest Possession you have If you are the poorest person In this room Economically speaking You are as rich in the gospel As any other person Poor Rich Powerful Weak It does not matter Do you treat the gospel As the entrustment that it is What Are you doing with it Now can I say this This is the best thing any of us ever have or ever will be given, this glorious, great news. It's better than whatever you treasure in your home most. Whatever possession you think is so valuable and you hide it and tuck it away in a safe so that no one could get it were they to break in your home, that possession pales in comparison to the good news of the gospel written in your heart. And not only have you been given that, you have been approved by God to be entrusted with it. If you came to Jesus yesterday or 50 years ago, you have been approved by him. Some of you are thinking, who am I to carry this good news? You have been approved. Some of you are walking in the opposite direction of the way you need to walk. He still calls you approved to be entrusted with the gospel because he's imparted his spirit to you. Now change and walk the other way. You have been approved by him. His stamp of approval is on you as his ambassador and a minister of the gospel. Praise God. Now here's why we need to know all that. Because everything in verse five, verse five begins with the word for, F-O-R, for. In other words, he's saying cause and effect. What I just told you about being approved, to be entrusted with the gospel, so you speak not to please man, but to please God. That is all the reason why you live the way I'm about to tell you you need to live because this has happened. You, does that make sense? You with me? So let's read now. Verse five through verse 12. Let's get our eyes in the word together. Here it says this. Four, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ Your witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So those five things that I said a minister of the gospel does or doesn't do in the case of the first two I hope you see them clearly there in the text. Let's walk through them. And I simply want to answer this question. Why? Why must a minister of the gospel be this way? So it's one thing to say ministers of the gospel, you need to not use flattery. But it's another thing to say, well, why not? And I want to see if we can explain and understand so that we might then walk in this way as ministers of the gospel. And let me say one more time, please, when I say minister of the gospel, do not think pastors, Okay? Think me, not me, you. You get what I'm saying, right? Take the two thumbs, point them at yourself, right? Think, I am a minister of the gospel. I am entrusted with the gospel. What must I do, all right? I want to avoid, sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, well, this is talking a description of like pastors, you know, and that's not it. This is what a minister of the gospel does and is. So first one, why can't a minister of the gospel flatter people? You see that in verse five there. Let's just read it again. Make sure we see it real clearly. Verse five, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Now you could think those are two separate things, but actually the second half of that verse illuminates the first half and it tells us what flattery truly is. The first reason why a minister of the gospel cannot give way to flattery is that flattery is usually rooted in greed. In other words, when I flatter someone, I'm trying to get something from them. Have you ever noticed when someone wants to make you feel real good about yourself, sometimes they're buttering you up and they're getting ready to to try and get something from you? Yes? And what Paul's saying, a minister of the gospel doesn't do that. A minister of the gospel doesn't flatter people. Now, pause. A minister of the gospel does encourage other people by pointing out good things about them. I don't want you walking out of here on a Sunday without somebody saying to you, I love you. I think you're remarkable. I love this about you. I want that flowing liberally around this place. Make sense? But what a minister of the gospel doesn't do is flatter. In other words, say false things or make a bigger deal out of true things, like overemphasize them in such a way that it seems exorbitant. A minister of the gospel doesn't do that because that's flattery, and flattery in particular is usually rooted in greed. It's, I want something from you, so I'm going to try and flatter you in order to get it from you. That's why Paul says we didn't come with a pretext for greed. In other words, Thessalonians, we, didn't, we weren't telling you this great news because we were trying to get something from you. We only wanted to impart to you this for your benefit. The ministry of the gospel does not flatter because they're not asking what's in it for me. They're not trying to get something from somebody. They're asking, how do I bless them? Always, always. That's what a minister of the gospel does. So that's the first thing that we see. And that's why, by the way, another reason why a minister of the gospel doesn't flatter is because flattery contradicts the very message you're conveying. If you flatter others to butter them up and make much of them and make them think more highly of themselves, if that's your aim, then you're contradicting the message of the gospel, which says no person is worthy of glory and honor except Jesus. And the aim of the gospel, the center and the heart, is that God would be glorified. Not that me as the ambassador, the minister, nor you as the recipient would be glorified. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. So no flattery on the lips of ministers of the gospel. Now the second thing that we see is that a minister of the gospel can't seek their own glory. So it's just closely tied to what we just said. We don't try to flatter others, nor do we seek to be sort of flattered ourselves. We're not looking to have people make much of us. So why is that? Why can't a minister of the gospel seek their own glory? That might seem like a trend, this is really obvious sort of a thing, but just stay with me for a minute because it might be more subtle than you realize. Look at verse six again here. He says, nor did we seek glory from people Whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten involved in a ministry, some kind of ministry activity, whatever it may be, and subtly you found in your heart that what you were hoping is that other people would think highly about you because you did it. I'm going to do this and I kind of hope that other people go, wow, (laughs) I mean that person Pretty special. Can I tell you, I remember this one. I remember God dealing with me on this. I um, helped a friend who she had the vision and the drive for it, kind of recruited me to come along with her in college. And we started a juvenile prison ministry for violent offenders in the state of Texas. And we did one-on-one mentorship uh, through a chaplain in the the juvie system in Texas. And so we would do that. And I remember thinking, I'm skipping Texas A&M home football games for this. So just think Penn State, but better, okay? <laughs> I had to, right? So, I mean, I was thinking, I'm missing football games. I'm going on Saturdays. I am I really, I think people should know, like, what I'm doing here. And I remember getting up at church and kind of giving the announcement. And suddenly in my heart, I just remember thinking, like, I, I kind of want people to know what I'm up to. What was that? That was this mixed heart. Because I genuinely cared. I did. I genuinely cared about these kids. I wanted them to hear about Jesus. I wanted them to know him. But I also wanted people to think highly of me. And I would slip it into conversations. I'd look for opportunities to highlight what I'd done. And it was just seeking my own glory. And that's not what a minister of the gospel does. That is not what a minister does of the gospel does. I've always noticed this. It's a great illustration for me. I like sports. And it's always interesting, and some of you are gonna think of yourself in this. The, the guys and the girls, more often guys really, who played high school sports at a kind of average level will always tell you about how great their high school career was. They'll look for opportunities to talk about like, Well, when I played, and da-da-da, they talk about it. And the guys that I know that have played professional sports, like big-time college sports, they never talk about it. They never mention that this is what they did. If somebody brings it up, they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, I did. But there's something about like, they were great at it and and they feel no need to toot their own horn. But those of us who were mediocre high school athletes, we are all about letting people know about it. It's, you know, the second somebody starts talking, I go, oh, so you were probably terrible. (laughs) Ministers of the gospel don't seek their own glory. It's not what they do, and the reason why is what we said in the in the first point, is because at the center of the gospel is the glory of God, not the glory of man, not the person receiving it, not the person giving it. That is at the center of the gospel. It's what we seek. Listen, uh, let me share it with you from First Peter, right? In in case you didn't hear it well enough from First Thessalonians. Now this is Peter, not Paul, talking. First, Peter chapter four is this chapter where, where Peter is just urging his, his hearers to persevere in the midst of suffering. He's saying it's hard, I know, but in, in verse two of chapter four, he's actually saying those who have suffered for the sake of righteousness have ceased from sin. In other words, he doesn't mean you never sin anymore, but he's, meaning there's such, he's, he's saying suffering's purposeful. It's purposeful. It, it does a work in you. So don't shy away from it. Don't seek it out, but don't, don't run from it. I promise you, it's doing something. And then look at what he comes to in verse seven, now of chapter four. He says this, the end of all things is at hand. What's he living in light of? The return of Jesus, do you see it? The end of all things is at hand. He's got the return clearly in his mind, and what does he say? Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Friends, I've been imploring you in this series, 1 Thessalonians, where we're talking about the return of Jesus, that in these days of COVID and political upheaval, I hear again and again believers who are looking to try and figure out how that all fits on the timeline of Christ's return. And while he does give us some indicators of his return, and he wants us to be aware and vigilant and looking, you should not be spending your time trying to figure out how every current event fits on the timeline. You're wasting your time because generations of believers have been wrong again and again and again. You want to know how to be ready for the return of Jesus? Live a self controlled and sober life, love one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. You want to be ready for Jesus to come back? Love the person sitting next to you. That's more important than knowing events on a timeline. And then what does he say next? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Don't let your gifts atrophy. Use them. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, and here it is, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The point of the gospel is the glory of God, not the glory of man. And he is glorified by redeeming a people for himself. The veracity of his nature is proved in satisfying his justice and his love, the cross of Christ, so that he might declare sinners righteous and be just in doing so. And not have one iota of his character besmirched in any small way. And only Christ can do that. Your moral good deeds cannot do it. Your best acts of kindness cannot do it. But Christ can. And he brings glory to the Father. Don't substitute or sacrifice as a minister of the gospel. Anything at the center of your ministry other than the glory of God. Don't let anything come in as a substitute. That's what Paul is saying. Third thing. Why must a minister of the gospel be gentle? So look at verses six and seven again. We saw at the end. He says we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But instead of making those demands. In other words, he's saying instead of saying you need to honor us. I'm not talking about money here actually. He's talking about the kind of honor that they should have shown towards them. And He's saying. We could, have, we could have said, look, we're, we're apostles. That means we have a position of authority and that should be honored because Christ has appointed us to that. So they could have done that. And it wouldn't have been wrong, he's saying here, but rather than do that, what's the better way? What does he choose to do instead of that? That's better. But we were, what church? Gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, that's a beautiful image. What is a picture of gentleness more than a mother with a newborn infant nursing that child? Can't take care of itself, needs to be defended, cared for, protected, nourished. And here's a mother doing that in in just a beautiful, beautiful way. And that's what Paul uses as the picture. Now, can I say here as a quick aside, later he's gonna talk about a father and the moral instruction that a father gives. And he's gonna say, I did, Paul, he's gonna say, I did both of those things. So he's not saying only women are gentle and only men instruct. Of course not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I did both of those things and women do both of these things too. But his, can I make the point here that may be really self-evident? It's really wonderful that what Paul chooses to do when he wants to highlight aspects of gospel ministry is he takes the beauty of femininity and points that out as part of bearing the image of God and it's good. The feminine is good and it's distinct from the masculine. They're not the same thing. And masculinity is good. It is not toxic. It need not be. Anything can become toxic. I hate the phrase toxic masculinity. Because masculinity as designed by God is glorious. And femininity as designed by God is glorious. And Paul uses both here. And to point out the obvious, they are different. And they are given by God as part of our design. And we are to walk in them. Now, in this gentleness, why must we be gentle? And the metaphor tells us we must be gentle because gentleness nourishes, harshness does not. The point of being a minister of the gospel is to build others up into Christ's likeness And if that's the point, you're not going to do that through harshness. You're going to do it through gentleness. I mean, do you like to follow someone who's being harsh with you or someone who's being gentle with you? The answer is obvious, right? can I tell you this? There are times where a hard hand is needed, but there's always, always an option for gentleness. Almost everything that must be done for the sake of another in Christ can be done in gentleness until it absolutely cannot be. Gentleness is Paul's first disposition and his first desire listen to what he says in first corinthians chapter 4 verse 21 he says to the corinthian church who is a tough church they've actually just said paul is like powerful in his letters but when you see him in person he's kind of nothing he's kind of weak it's like you, you hear your best artist on uh, on your mp3 player on your phone you're like they sound great and you go hear him in concert and their voice is terrible and you're like eh. that's kind of what that's that was a weird noise that i just made you know, not as good in person. That's kind of what they're saying about Paul. He's not as good in person. He's kind of lame when you meet him. Paul's response is, well, I'll come to you and we'll see who has the power. But this is what he says then after that. He says, do you want me to come to you with a rod of discipline? Or may I come to you in love with the spirit of, guess what? Gentleness. In other words, his, he wants to come in gentleness. There are times where the rod is required, but gentleness should be the first place, always. If you want to be a minister of the gospel, and you are, your ministry needs to be marked by gentleness. If it's marked by anything else, it's not the ministry of the gospel. You need to think about that. By the way, gentleness doesn't mean much until a situation arises where you don't want to be gentle that's when you really find out if you have gentleness in you. Let's go to the next one, number four. Minister of the gospel shares their lives with others. Why? Why does a minister of the gospel not just share the the message, but they share their, it says here in verse eight, their very selves. Paul says, I wanted to share with you my, my very self, not just the gospel. Well, why is that the case? Well, let me say why and then let me tell you what that means because I don't want you to walk and go, okay, well, like, if I ever try to minister to anybody, it means I have to like, spend my whole life attached to them. Like, what does that look like? Paul himself didn't live among the Thessalonians. I mean, it's a good thing to plant yourself somewhere and to live there long and have a long obedience in the same direction. That is what most of us are called to do. To plant ourselves, not keep uprooting and going from place to place. It's why staying in a church and being a part of a church, not just as a pastor, but as a people, is so valuable. To have 20, 30, 40 years of history in a place and just keep pouring yourself out over and over and over. It's beautiful. When Paul is saying, okay, I want to share my very self with you. I mean, he didn't live among them. But here's why that's so important. Because the gospel itself is the message of the reconciliation of a relationship that was fractured. God and you. God and mankind. A fractured relationship restored by the blood of Jesus and his work for all who believe, who all, all who come by faith to him. If that's the message... How much more powerful is that message brought to bear when it's not just someone speaking it, but when it's someone who comes and enters into your life and demonstrates what relationship looks like? Gospel ministry is at its heart relational. It is at its heart relational. That's why I think Paul is saying ministers of the gospel want to share their very lives, not just the message. Now, what does that mean? There's three, there's, it's probably more than three things, but three things in this text that we can see here. To share our very selves. or Our very lives. Means at the very least. To, to let people make a claim upon us. A claim upon our emotions. A claim upon our time. And a claim upon our money. Those three things. And again. In other places. I think you'd see other things. Other aspects of this. But here. We're just going to stick with what we have here. We see these three things. So the first thing you notice. Is verse 8 begins and ends. With a statement of affection. He says. We were uh desirously affectionate right right having this desire for you and then at the end of verse eight he talks about because we you had become very dear to us in other words he didn't stand at an emotional distance from the the Thessalonians he let himself be emotionally impacted by them you cannot say I want to share my life with you and remain emotionally distant from somebody would you agree with that that's what he's saying. That doesn't work in a marriage, it doesn't work with kids, it doesn't work in friendships, and it doesn't work in the ministry of the gospel. So he says, I let you have an emotional hold on me. You affect me. Like, you can ruin my day, right? Like, you can, you can crush me emotionally because I am connected to you. I am affectionately desirous of you. You have become very dear to me. So that's at least the first thing that Paul means when he says, I didn't want to just share the gospel with you. I wanted to share my very life with you. The second thing is his time. He says we labor day and night. The picture is Paul waking up early and ministering the gospel all day and then at night working on making tents to provide a living for himself. Now, at other places, Paul receives help financially from other churches. And he's not ashamed or afraid to do so. He actually invites them to give. But something about the Thessalonian church, maybe because of their extreme poverty, he didn't ask them for a dime. And he says, I made a point not to because I thought it would get in the way. The gospel is the point. The ministry is the point, not me being funded here. So it's interesting. He's probably receiving funds from the Philippian church in order to help the Thessalonican church. The Thessalonian church right. So he's receiving from some churches. But he's laboring day and night. In other words they've made a claim upon his time. He doesn't treat his time as his own. To share your life is to share an emotional connection. And it's to share your, your time. and Which is the most precious resource you have. You know that right. Time. Much more than money. But the next one is money. And that's exactly. what Do you see what he's doing? I just explained it. He is laboring to provide for himself so that they don't have to give anything to him. And he says, you have a claim upon my sort of economic status, my economic situation. And ministers of the gospel put their money where their mouth is. They allow those they're ministering to to have a claim upon their finances. And that might look like saying, we're going to have you over for meals regularly. It might look like saying, you need something, we're going to help provide for it. It might look like saying, we're gonna let you live in our house for a while because you need space and we're gonna do that. It could look any number of variety of ways, but they, to minister the gospel and to share our very lives means to let people make a claim on at least those three things, our emotions, our time, our money. Okay, fair enough? All right, last one for today. Then we're gonna come to the Lord's table. The fifth thing that we see here is that we, the, a minister of the gospel has to care about maturity in Christ not just conversion to Christ. So why? Why must we do that? Well, notice in verse 11 and 12, let's read it again. Paul appeals to fatherhood. He says, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. There's the phrase I want you to get, a man in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, what he's saying is, Thessalonians, I didn't just want you to receive Jesus, I wanted to teach you what that means for the rest of your life. So you received Jesus, now how do I walk in a manner worthy of what I've received? I wanna help you grow to maturity. It's Colossians 128, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's my goal in ministry. It marks everything I want us to be about. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the ambition. That's what he's saying. It's the same thing he's saying here when he says, we want you to learn to walk in a manner worthy of God because you're citizens of his kingdom. That's the why. By the way, why must we do that? Because he's saying you're citizens of God's kingdom. It makes no sense to receive Christ and then live however you want. It makes no sense because when you receive Christ, you became a citizen of his kingdom and there's a certain... There's a certain uh, ethos and a certain morality and a certain way of life that citizens of that kingdom partake of. And I wanna teach you how to do that, he's saying. I wanna teach you how to walk in that way. Because the point is not just accept Christ and get to heaven. The point is receive Christ and walk with him every day. The closer intimacy, more love, more surrender, more yieldedness to God, more service to him day in and day out, If you've walked with Jesus 50 years and you're no closer to him today than you were 50 years ago, something's wrong. The point is that you adore him more and love him more. Isn't that an exciting way to think about life? If you do it right, if you follow Christ and are minister the gospel right, whatever your love for him is right now, 10 years from now, you're gonna be blown away by how much more you love him. It's like marriage, right? When you testify to this, Amanda and I have been marveling at this recently. We're 13 years into marriage and it seems to be hitting this really sweet spot where it's like we loved each other a lot. When we got married, it was hard to imagine loving each other more. I could not have fathomed then how much more I would love her today than I did 13 years ago. And it's because we have gone through everything together. Ups and downs and highs and lows. I think I've told you this before. Kenny Rogers has the cheesiest song called Through the Years. I cry every time I hear it. Because the whole song is about how through the years, you know, you never let me down. We were there together through it all. It's actually a pretty good picture. I mean, most songs about marriage and love are so dumb. They're just, they just don't, they don't get it. They don't understand what really love is. That's as, maybe as close as, Kenny Rogers, way to go. Maybe as close as I've heard, Right. It's like that with the Lord. It's like that with the Lord. Every day, you grow to love him more. Now, I know life is hard and there's ups and there's downs and there's plateaus and there's times where we just think, oh, Lord, I don't know if I can put one foot in front of the other today. Like, I feel very disappointed in what you've brought into my life today. I understand. I know that. But the trajectory of our lives is that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord as citizens of his kingdom. And as such, we grow in love and affection and in righteousness and in joy and in peace and in purity. All those things are meant to grow. You are not meant to finish this race, when, however many days God gives you, in the same place you are today. You are meant to finish the race in a very different place unless today is the day the Lord calls you home. And if he does praise God, you'll be with him. So, those are five things that mark ministers of the gospel. And let's go back to what we said at the beginning. People who are asleep don't see things as they truly are, but those who are awake and keeping awake see everything in light of the return of Jesus. He's coming. He's coming. You will see him. And as such, don't you want to spend your life as a minister of the gospel, marked by not flattering people, by not seeking your own glory? by being gentle, by sharing not just the message, but your very life, yourself, to give your life away so that someone else will be more satisfied in who Christ is and what he has done for them. Don't you want to do that? Yeah. So friends, we come to the table now. And as we do... To the Lord's table. We are reminded of the thing, of the act upon the cross, which has brought about this new life that we talk about and made us ministers of the gospel. And so every time we come to this table, we're reminded that. Servers, I'll invite you to come if you would. And let me just say two things to you, friends. I know that in a room this size, there are folks who are not followers of Jesus. So let me help you with what we're about to do. Just want to invite you to let these elements pass. And the reason is this, that we're gonna take these elements, those of us who are believers in Christ, And as we take them, we're saying something. We're proclaiming it actually to you and to ourselves, to our own hearts. We're saying, I believe. We're proclaiming what we proclaimed when we sang, the thing that has united the church across generation after generation for thousands of years. Jesus Christ is Lord. In spite of all of our differences, that unites us. We declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. A beautiful declaration. When we take these elements, we're proclaiming that. And you have not yet come to that conviction. We're so glad you're here. Keep listening. Keep learning. Join us in the journey. We trust God is drawing you in. We believe that. But for today, let these elements pass. So that you wouldn't proclaim something you don't actually believe. Follower of Jesus. The Lord has instructed us not to come to this table lightly. In other words, we are not to come in such a way that we say, I'm living however I want. And nothing needs to change. So I wanna give you two bits of instruction today. As you hold the elements in your hand, consider two things. Number one, just pray this simple prayer. Lord, what needs to change? Let him speak to you. And then commit yourself to obey. Number two, since we're talking about being ministers of the gospel, could I invite you today to say, Lord, where are you calling me to minister? What is it you want me to do? Let him speak to that. Maybe you already know, maybe you're doing it. And, And what the Lord would speak to you would say, keep going, keep going. So let's ask those two questions of the Lord as we take the the Lord's Supper together. Servers, if you'd come.